Yeah, so I have been uh, sprinting towards the end of the book of Genesis. I'm hoping to finish the book tonight. Well, let me rephrase that. I'm finishing the book tonight. Whether you want to stay that long is kind of up to you, I guess. But uh, we're going to do Genesis 46 through 50. Uh, The last sections of the book of Genesis, sometimes you lose the story when you break it down too much. And so I broke it into these uh, natural chunks if you're telling the story, unnatural chunks if you're trying to preach it. Unnatural chunks if you're trying to preach it. So uh, anyway... As you may or may not recall at this point, uh, Joseph is, uh, he's the big dog in Egypt. Uh, He is the one who God spoke to about this famine that was going to reach all over the earth. Uh, As he was speaking to him, uh, he was also preparing him to be in the right place at the right time uh, with the right people so that Pharaoh could put him in charge of taking care of this famine. Uh, So he came up with this plan to keep food in the storehouses for seven years, good years leading into the famine, so they had plenty to provide for their people for the time of the famine, but also for the surrounding nations that would come to them as well. So they are uh, in great shape to do that. In the midst of that famine, though, his family, who has not treated him well, in fact, his brothers sold him into slavery, Uh, a little awkward, but they've had a family reunion at this point. There seems to be movement in their relationship there. They've gone back and told their dad that he's supposed to come now to Egypt to see his son, who who he thought was dead. And so that's really where we're picking it up now. He's found out that his son is alive, and he's going to Egypt to finally see his son, who he thought was dead. And so it's going to be this great family reunion, but we don't want to lose in the midst of the cool family story. We don't want to lose in the midst of the, uh, the cool provision in the midst of the famine story. We don't want to miss this key point that the hero of our story is not Joseph. The hero of our story is God. And what he's doing in provision for this one family is not just so that they would be blessed, but because he intends to bless through this family, through the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then now Joseph. He's intending to bless the whole world. And so that's what's ultimately happening here. He is bringing this one family down to Egypt so that they can have a place to grow into a mighty nation, and then he's going to return them back to the land that he had promised to them. So I'm going to be reading some massive chunks, and then I'll go back and tell you about those massive chunks. How does that sound? Probably sounds gross when I say chunks. I'm going to be reading big sections of the Bible here. So chapter 46, verse 1 through 27 is the first section. So Israel, and in this case Israel is Jacob, Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. 
Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went down to Egypt. Now, long list of names there. I'm going to give you the highlights. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, those are the sons of Leah. Next up, we have Gad and Asher. Those are the sons of Zilpha. And then we have uh, Jacob, or I'm sorry, Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, those are the sons of Rachel. And then verse 23 and 24, we have Dan and Naphtali. These are the sons of Billa. Um, verse 25, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel as she bore the, these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And so it's describing now as Jacob, the father of Joseph, but also the father of all of these sons is now going to be moving to Egypt so that he and his family can live through this famine. And they're going to come under the protection and under the provision of, of Pharaoh through his son, Joseph. So that opening statement, though, that amazing thing that happens in the first three verses, we don't want to miss what happened there. He goes to a place called Beersheba, a place he's worshipped God before. He goes there to offer sacrifices to, the, to God uh, and probably thinking in terms of this, like I'm leaving the place where I normally sacrifice to go someplace else. So he's going to worship God before he leaves town and he seems to be ready to leave. He's already got all of his family with him. But when he gets there in this process of worshipping that night, God speaks to him in a vision, which every time I see that in Scripture, I'm like, wow, in a vision, God spoke to him. It's just kind of this cool thing that you see oftentimes in the Old Testament, not to negate that God speaks to us all the time through his word. He's still speaking very clearly through his word. I think he still speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. I think he still speaks to us through other believers. I think he still speaks to people in dreams, although it's harder for us to understand and quantify that. But for them, that was a normal occurrence when God wanted to get somebody's attention throughout the Old Testament, he would speak to them in this way. And so he's, if you can imagine, in the middle of the night, having this vision of God, and you hear God say, Jacob, Jacob. And he responds, here I am. I am God. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. That all ties back to the promises that God has previously made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, but promises that he's already made as well uh, to Jacob, that he's going to make a big nation out of them. Um, but that's where we kind of follow this thread, that this is ultimately what God's accomplishing. We'll see this same concept again at the end of this book in chapter 50, where uh, Jake or Joseph points out that all of this was God's plan 
to preserve people, to preserve a people for himself. This is all part of God's plan. But in this moment, as Jacob is intending to travel down to Egypt, he's getting this nice little reminder from God, this nice moment from God where God says, this is okay, go do this. Man, what, what an amazing comfort that confirmation must be in the moment. I don't know about you guys, but there are times I long for that type of confirmation from God. Like there are times where I would just, you know, if God would just say, hey, Sean, you're going the right direction. Like, that would be nice. I was actually praying that tonight about several different things that we have going on at the church as we were praying. I'm like, okay, God, I need confirmation from you in this. I need confirmation from you in this, like give this to me so I don't have to guess going forward so I can trust that it's coming from you. But here's what we have now. Jacob is going to have this confirmation from God and it lists out the families. Uh, Remember the family is kind of a weird setup. Uh, Jacob has uh, four wives technically and then each of those wives had sons and each of those sons had some more children. And so that's how they end up with a group of 70 that ultimately goes down there to Egypt. But that 70 is going to grow by some estimates to the point of millions that will eventually return to the promised land. So just be anticipating that. Uh, once, uh, one other thing I would point out in this is that as they go in, they're going in in a cool ride that Pharaoh himself has sent carts for them. So if you can imagine these 70 people in the carts of Pharaoh making this trip through the land of Canaan all the way into Egypt. And as they come into Egypt, the people see the cart of Pharaoh moving this family into town. Like, that's pretty impressive. That goes beyond just borrowing your friend's truck. This is like a big deal. Like, this is God announcing their arrival in the land. So verse 28 now, there's still a few things that are uh, concerning uh, as they try to figure all this out. It's still a little bit scary, I imagine, uh, for the rest of the family. Uh, but as we continue on this next big section here, it says, Now he, uh, that's uh, Jacob, sent Judah, that's one of his sons, before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Uh, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel as soon as he pre- appeared before him. He fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture 
for our, your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among you, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Nice way of saying, how old a man are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered, Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So now, as they come into town, uh, you see a couple of things happening. The very first thing that I would point out is just this amazing reunion in verse 29. Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. So if you can imagine that scene now, the second in command of Egypt is taking his chariots to meet this other group that's coming in in the wagons of Pharaoh. So it's this great parade coming through into the land of Egypt. And here comes the second in command and they all come together. You can't imagine that this wouldn't be a scene for any bystanders. Anybody that happens to see this happen. And the second in command gets out and it says he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck for a long time. These two grown men just falling into each other's arms and crying and weeping because of what was lost in the years that they thought Joseph was dead, because of the relationship that was lost when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. So just imagine kind of that amazing scene. And then Joseph goes right into protocol. All right, you're about to meet Pharaoh. I want you to address him in this way. He's going to ask you what you do for a living. You will tell him you are shepherds because nobody in Egypt wants to be a shepherd. It's the worst possible job. Which is, you know, pretty wise if you're trying to gain entrance into somebody else's country. He's like, this is what he's saying. Just tell them you do the worst possible job. The great part about this is they actually do the worst possible job. Now, I've never been a shepherd. It may not be that bad of a job, but from the, it says in uh, verse 34 there that from the Egyptian mindset, shepherds were loathsome. They hated the idea of being shepherds. So he's just telling them, he's setting them up for success there. And then this cool thing happens in chapter 47 when they go in and they actually get a chance to meet Pharaoh. He asks them the question. He tells them, uh, they tell them that they're in fact shepherds. And then he does this neat thing here. He says, oh, you're shepherds, you've brought all your flock? Hey, if there's any of you that have the ability, could you just take care of all of my flocks as well? I mean, talk about the royal treatment. Riding in Pharaoh's carriage, meeting Pharaoh's second in command, and now being put in charge of Pharaoh's flocks. And then they're going to be in the city of Ramses or near the area of Ramses in Goshen, which is near the palace of the Pharaoh. If you're trying to imagine where Goshen is, if you have an idea on a map where Egypt is, uh, let me draw it for you in the air, but I'll have to do it 
for your perspective. But So you know where Israel is, right? And you've got the, the sea here, and you just kind of curve around. And as it comes into kind of the African continent down here, the top right corner, that's Egypt. The top right corner of Egypt is Goshen. That's the area there. And it's kind of that, at the time in particular, but probably not as much now, but at the time, it's that more fertile area because you've got the water right there and you've got the rivers then, kind of this delta area going in through there. And so they're coming from a place of dryness and no pasture to a place where they can now take care of their flocks. They're really being treated well here. Beyond that, Joseph, the Pharaoh's second in command, who happens to be you know, their brother, who happens to also be uh, the, the son of Jacob here. Uh, but anyway, he's going to provide for his whole family their food. So now the government is providing for their food. It's just kind of this amazing scenario for them. It's like the best scenario that you could have possibly imagined if you were to be displaced from your homeland. And so here we have all of this happening. And uh, in all of those things, uh, Jacob now gets to be introduced. The father of Joseph gets to be introduced to Pharaoh. And it says twice in there that he blesses Pharaoh. In verse 7 and in verse 10, he takes a moment and he blesses Pharaoh. But for us, we know when, when a man of God blesses somebody, it's they're asking for God's blessing on their life. Uh, he mentions there that he's 130 years old, uh, which sounds somewhat foreign to us. Uh, there is an interesting curve that you can look at in the Old Testament when they look at ages uh, that's starting you know, with Adam, who lived a, a uber long time. And then there's this downward curve as you go throughout history, and you're getting kind of to the bottom of that curve, it won't be long before you start to see what we would call more normal ages. A couple of reasons people think that happens. Uh, one has to do with the uh, closeness to creation, that in creation, initially, we were designed to live here long term, but after the fall, that things got worse here. It's like saying the environment was destroyed at that point because of sin entering into the world. But anyway, uh, that protection that they had in the garden then shortened the lifespan. Uh, another way you could look at it is to say it like this, that God was intending to bring about the blessing of the people of Israel, and so maybe he elongated the Israelites' life just for that purpose of building a nation. If you're trying to start from one and go to many, these elongated lives might have something to do with that. Uh, and then you'll find generationally after Adam, it's just shorter and shorter. You got a couple ups and downs. You got Methuselah lived forever, it felt like. Um, but uh, some others that were just taken up, that's kind of cool. Uh, short life there. But they're now in the land. They're settled in. There's still this business of the famine uh, that we're going to just hit briefly here uh, to see what was done during the time of the famine and how that all worked out. Uh, so let's, let's learn what the rest of the famine was like. In verse 13, now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought or bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence, for our money is gone? Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys, and he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Ooh, new government plan. I'm thinking that works for me. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households and as food for your little ones." So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. So this is a pretty amazing power play. If you think about what's happened now, because of the foresight granted by God, Joseph was able to store up enough food to provide for the people, but he wasn't just giving it away. He's charging the people for this food. And so it got to the point where he had collected all the money of the land of Canaan, Israel, that area up north, and all the money of the land of Egypt. The people had no more money. All the money in the land now belongs to Pharaoh. That's a power play. Now the people say, you have all of our money and we're so hungry, help us again the next year. And he says, all right, I'll take all of your animals. Now Pharaoh has all the money, he has all the livestock. Power play, right? The next year they come to him, you've got all our money, you've got all of our animals, we're out of food again, please feed us. We'll become your slaves and we'll sell you our land. So in exchange for that food, Pharaoh now owns all the land and he owns all the people. Now it's this huge power play for Pharaoh. But Joseph does something interesting in the middle of this. He saved their lives. He owns everything. But he didn't leave it like that. He shows a little bit of grace. He brings all of those people together and he says, here's what I'm going to do for you. Free seed for everybody. Take this seed, 
go replant the land, and from now on, you only owe one-fifth in taxes to Pharaoh. But he has earned the people at this point, even though they've sold themselves into slavery for food, they're choosing this. They say, man, you saved our lives. They see themselves as belonging to Pharaoh in this sense. But he has this cool thing he gives them so that they can replant the land. Number one, that's going to be important for the land after that uh, terrible, terrible famine came through the land. But number two, uh, it then gives them a little bit of that freedom back. So even though technically they would be slaves of Pharaoh, he gives them the feeling of freedom by sending them back out to kind of start all over again. And then he takes the tax from them. Now you might look at that and say, one-fifth, are you kidding me? 20% tax, not that bad, right? A lot of people pay a lot more than 20% in taxes. Not that bad. But it's now established Pharaoh as a monarch. I mean, this guy is set. He's got all the money. He's got all the livestock. He's got all the land. So kind of this crazy situation that happens in there. And so that statute then of that 20% tax that the people were in this case willing to pay because they feel as if they were saved. Verse 27, this next uh, extremely big chunk here says, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I die, or when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the land in their burial place. And he said, I will do as, as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim with him. When it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a company of peoples and, you, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring there, that, I'm sorry, but your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan and on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, now who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him. He kissed them and embraced them. 
And Joseph, or Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's hand, uh, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your hand on his head. Here we go again. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He will also become a people, and he will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with, his, with my sword and my bow. So the old man, Jacob, who's also known as Israel, is drawing close to death. He's going to do two things here. The first thing is he asks his son, Joseph, his favorite son, when I die, don't bury me in Egypt. Take me home to be buried with my family. Joseph agrees to that. The second thing, though, is he brings Joseph's two sons in, and he's going to pray a blessing on them by which he's actually adopting them as his own sons, not to raise them, but so that they will receive inheritance as sons. A really interesting thing that's happening there, okay? He's giving them an inheritance in his land. So before, he had 12 sons who would have had an inheritance. Now, he's essentially having, it's going to work out to 13, I'll explain that in a minute, but he's essentially now going to have the inheritance for 13 sons divvied up. Now, what he's doing is he's once again, right, He's blessing Joseph more than all of his brothers, just like the coat of many colors. He's just the favorite son. And here we see Jacob. Here we go again, right? So he brings these two boys in, and he's going to bless them, and he's supposed to put his right hand on the oldest son, giving him the greater blessing, and his left hand on the youngest son, giving him the lesser blessing. Old man does this, switches it up. Remember, he was the younger son of two who stole the blessing from his older brother. Does history have to repeat itself, old man? <laughs> That's basically what Joseph's thinking. Dad, what have you done? <laughs> You've blessed the wrong kids. He goes, ah, they're both going to be fine. Just the younger one's going to be better than the old one, just like me. 
But ultimately, the way that works out is that for Joseph now, because his two sons have been adopted, his sons are actually, he personally has actually been receiving a double blessing. So if you imagine this in the form of an inheritance, each son in the family gets the same amount. Let's just pretend that's the way that works out. Each son gets the same amount. Well, when you get to Joseph, instead of him getting the same amount, his two sons will get the same amount as all the other brothers so that Joseph's family ends up getting twice as much as any of the brothers. It's a double portion. We'll see later how that works out in the division of the land. But when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, you now have to understand that Ephraim and Manasseh will be named as tribes of Israel. They've been adopted in this moment uh, by, the, by the father of Joseph. Again, just because he loved Joseph more. And he loved Joseph more because he was the firstborn of the wife he loved more. He didn't want to be married to Leah. He got tricked into marrying Leah. That was just the reality. He worked seven extra years for the right to be married to Rachel. Now, I've said this before, God's will would have still been done if he would have only married Leah and just said, I was tricked, but this is the marriage I have. God will bless me in my faithfulness in this marriage. I I believe that wholeheartedly. One reason I believe that is Leah has Judah, and from the line of Judah comes Jesus Christ. So everything would have been fine, but Jacob wanted what Jacob wanted. And so Jacob did whatever Jacob wanted to do, and it continually caused problems in his family life as he showed these preferences and these priorities of things that didn't necessarily match up with the way God had intended things to go. So, uh, and now in chapter 49, we're going to see him bless his sons. Then Jacob, it says, summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father, Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall, be, or you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So he's going to go son by son, and he's going to, uh, at the end of this chapter, it's going to call it a blessing. At the beginning of this chapter, it's basically said it's a prophecy. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. And uh, uh, it's interesting. I'm not going to go through all of them as, as detailed as I will, but Reuben is one of the ones where I want to just remind you. Uh, it says here, you know, he should have been the one who has preeminence, but he's not going to get it. And then it gives you the reason why. The reason is because you went up to your father's bed, and sure enough, uh, we find that Reuben has sexual relations in Genesis chapter 35 with Billa, one of his father's wives. Now, not his mom, right? It's kind of like a stepmom situation. Still wrong, still gross, don't do it, right? That's the deal. And so he, in this blessing or prophecy or however you want to look at it, is essentially saying, hey, because you defiled my family, defiled my couch, you're not the preeminent son anymore. Now, the question is, is he speaking this into existence? Or is God somehow prophesying through him in that moment? 
I tend to lean to the idea that he's prophesying in that moment. I'm not opposed to speaking blessings over people's lives, but that's really nothing more than a prayer. This, though, seems to be God prophesying over them. So apparently he has the gift of prophecy, which would make sense because he was also dreaming dreams and hearing from God. This is a consistent thing that we see in his life. So Reuben, you done messed up, kid. You're no longer number one. His next sons, it says in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory not be united. Uh, let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the next one on the list here. Two brothers, Simeon and Levi, he deals with at the same time. He says they're going to be dispersed or divided, and they're going to be scattered throughout the land. This is literally going to happen as a result of their sin. He says, because in their anger they slew men. You might remember in Genesis chapter 34, their sister Dinah had been raped by a man named Shechem. And so they decided to kill everybody in Shechem's city. That's what we might call an overreaction. Kill Shechem, I'm good with that, right? But he kills everybody in that city, so much so where dad says, you've ruined us in this area. You've destroyed our reputation. We got to move, which is probably wise if you've just murdered everybody in a town. It's time to move, right? But because of their sin... He is not going to give them the typical blessing. And you'll see this laid out later when they move back to the land in 400 years and they divide up the land. Uh, First of all, Simeon, instead of having just kind of this nice little section, it's really weird. The land of Judah is going to circle them. They're going to be completely divided from the rest of of the other brothers' lands. It's a really strange thing. But it's like Judah's just this circle around them. Levi gets no land at all. It says they're going to be dispersed. The way that God does that is really interesting. Uh, The tribe of Levi is going to have a great comeback. They're going to be the ones that will later stand up with Moses when the people are sinning. And God's going to say, no longer are the firstborn children my priests, but now my priests will be the sons of Levi. And so they have no inheritance in the land. What he does instead is he gives them 48 cities scattered throughout the land where they can be priests and judges before the people. So it's really kind of a cool thing that he does for them there. Uh, The next one is Judah. By the way, if you want to look into that, Joshua chapter 19 describes those two things when they divide up the land. Uh, Anyway, the next up is verse 8, Judah Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who dares rouse him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from under his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be... The, the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Now, there is a ton of of Christological imagery in there. Remember, Judah is the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is called, called, Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And what does it say here about Judah? He is a lion. As a lion who dares rouse him up. It's this kind of this cool picture there. Uh, he's a lion's whelp even, it says. Uh, it also says in verse 10 that the scepter shall never depart from Judah. The scepter is the sign of a king. The king, the promise there, will never depart from the tribe of Judah. That's where you're going to end up with David and then eventually Jesus. That same concept there as well. And it says this will continue to be uh, from the tribe of Judah will rule until Shiloh comes, which is a reference to Jesus himself. Uh, It goes on to explain how Judah, now remember Judah was guilty of a lot of sin in this scenario in, in the book of Genesis, including he was the one that came up with the idea of killing his brother and selling his brother. He's the guy that also repented before his brother and asked for forgiveness. I love how this describes it. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. It describes this this picture of of this washing of the blood. Again, very similar to things that you would think of uh, in terms of Jesus. Uh, You'll see that picture as well repeated in the book of, of Revelation, but we don't have time for that. All right, let's hit the rest of these brothers quickly. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, um, where he will buy seashells. He shall be a haven for ships. His flank shall be toward Sidon. Ishkar is a strong donkey. Thanks, Dad. Lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. Man, he loves making fun of his kids. Uh, That bites the horse's heels so that his riders fall backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. So he's going to be a raiders fan. As for Asher, his food shall be rich and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is, fruit, is a fruitful bow, bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches shall run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." From the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the distinguished one amongst his brothers. Again, Dad always liked you best. Blessings and blessings and blessings and blessings. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed everyone with blessings appropriate to him. 
And then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Heatite, in that cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field from Ephron, the Heatite, for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field of the cave that is, it, that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. Look at that. He is going to be buried with his wife Leah, not Rachel. It all could have been fine if you would have just stuck with one wife. That's all I'm saying. So, interesting thing though, as he blesses his sons, I love how it points that out. He blesses them in a way that's appropriate to them. Now, this isn't just some random thing. He blesses them in a way that's appropriate to them. He knows his children and he blesses them in accordance with those blessings. He's not afraid to point out the faults and the sins. He's also not afraid to bless them in ways that match who they were. So kind of a cool thing. I think it was more prophetic from God. There's a lot of prophetic things that happen in there. So I don't want to get too caught up on that. Anyway, we finish up this chapter and the rest of the book now. Uh, in verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, uh, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, I know, uh, I'm sorry, if now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up, bury your father, and he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, And it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is uh, Atad beyond Jordan, they lamented there uh, with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at this threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond uh, the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Heatite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had gone with him to the land with his father. So now Joseph... Uh, is gonna, his, his father Jacob is going to die, also known as Israel. He's going to die. Joseph is going to keep his promise to his father to bury him back in Canaan, the promised land that God had promised to them. 
Uh, it is kind of a fascinating thing that happens. Number one, when his father dies, he has him embalmed by the Egyptians. It takes 40 days. It's almost kind of in a similar idea to this idea that we now have, like lying in state. Have you heard of that? When a president dies and his body stays in the Capitol Rotunda so everybody can come see it. Well, this was such a big deal that for 70 days, the Egyptians mourned the death of Jacob because his son Joseph saved all of their lives. They mourned alongside him because of who he was and what he did for them. So really kind of a powerful mourning that happens there. But then they go into the land of Canaan and they come in in this procession, procession again like a giant parade, right? And as they come into the land and they grieve for another week in the land, the Canaanites are like, oh my goodness, what is this? I mean, it's just this constant announcement. It's almost they're, they're being treated like royalty. It's the provision that God has brought to them ultimately so he can fulfill his purposes. So now everybody goes back to Egypt in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? Pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be, be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So they comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machar, the sons of, of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So after Jacob dies, they return to the land, and the brothers who done their little brother Joseph wrong, they're a little freaked out. What if he holds a grudge? So they send messengers to him saying, Dad said you're supposed to forgive us. Now, I don't even know if that's true. Like, if you just kind of read through this naturally, it seems like they're making it up, like it's a lie. Like one more sin just to make the end of the book perfect, right? Dad said you had to forgive us. Joseph says, I'm not God. I'm not the judge. Everything you did was meant to harm me, 
But God used every bit of your sinful, disgusting hatred for me to accomplish his ultimate purpose. That right there in the book of Genesis is the big picture of hope. We're constantly reminded that God is working in everything that happens in the world. From our perspective, we look at it and we go, I cannot believe what is happening. This is horrible. It's painful. It's sad. It's difficult. And God says in the midst of that, and by the way, it's not caused by God. It's caused by the sin, right? It was the sin that caused all this craziness. But God says, even in that, you can't mess up my plan. And he provided for the salvation, physical salvation of all of those people, but ultimately the preservation of his promise that they'll return to the land, and ultimately the promise that through their family will be a blessing to all the world. He provides for them not just a physical salvation, but in Jesus Christ, he's going to provide an eternal salvation. The Old Testament is not disconnected from the New Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation that is laid that our Savior Jesus Christ stands on. It all flows together. It all has great purpose. A cool thing that you might want to check out when you have some time in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 Uh, When you think of the life of Jacob, Joseph's dad, who becomes Israel, there's lots of things you might think he became famous for. In the the, the hall of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, where they list out all the faithful men of God, the thing that Jacob is most remembered for is worshiping in his old age and blessing his children. It's this thing that happens at the end of his life. And that's the thing God says, It was that faith that was credited to him as righteousness because of those actions that he was saved. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so now we have set ourselves up for the book of Exodus. We'll start that January 1st, the book of Exodus. Between now and then, we have a few things going on, uh, but just know this, next week, it's Thanksgiving week, and we always have the tradition of the Wednesday of Thanksgiving week, we gather together, we do Thanksgiving worship uh, songs, and we have an open mic, and people just have a chance to just share with everybody, this is what I'm thankful for. So if you have the opportunity to come back next week and just uh, praise God for what He's done with you in your, in your life in the last year, share some of the blessings. Those blessings bless God, but those blessings will also bless everybody else that's here. So I hope to see you guys next week. Amen. Doug, I'm going to pray. Why don't you close us in a rendition of Great is Thy Faithfulness, unless you change the song since I last saw your set list. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful so much for uh, being able to work through your word, to be able to see the big picture of what you're doing through all these historical events, but not let the individual events distract us from the greater plan. Father, would you help us to trust you in the midst of everything that goes on in our life, in the midst of the difficulties that we might have, in the midst of the chaos that might be the world around us that was caused by a sinfulness that has entered into our world and has brought chaos and wreaked havoc on the world around us. Lord, help us to stand in trust of you and what you are accomplishing through us. Help us to remember 
that you're going to cause all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your promise. Father, we thank you for this. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.